Jeremiah chapter 47, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. Thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. At the noise of the stamping hooves of his strong horses and the rushing of his chariots at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers will not look back for their children, lacking courage because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourself? O you sword of the Lord. How long until you are quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There he has appointed it. Jeremiah begins to unfold the future for the nations that surround Jerusalem and Judah. He's already spoken to Egypt in the south. In Jeremiah chapter 46 and 48, he will direct the prophecies towards Egypt to the south and then Moab to the east. Here, Jeremiah has a word about Philistia. Or Gaza. Jeremiah cites both the source in verse 1 and then in verses 6 and 7, the source of the judgment, and then the severity of the judgment in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. Now, what's interesting is as Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment against Gaza, he doesn't cite a laundry list of sins against the nation. The Philistines' sins were were very well known. Remember when the children of Israel had come from the bondage and slavery of Egypt, they came up from the south as they're making their way into the promised land, and it was occupied by people. Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Hittites, Jebusites in Jerusalem, and of course, Pepsi lights, those people who are against Coke. No, there's no Pepsi lights there. I just made that. Up. I know you're hearing all these ites and you're going, who are these people? And remember, there is a broad, broad picture that's given to the believer. The broad picture, of course, is the occupation of the land becomes a type and a picture of our occupying the Lord Jesus Christ for the children of Israel. Occupying the land of promise meant understanding and embracing the promises of God. The Philistines stood as an enemy against Israel from the beginning. And so they're going to be judged. Look at verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. The Philistines, like I said, had long been enemies of Israel. And who were they? Scholars suggest that their origin came from the Aegean islands or or possibly Crete. And we discover that in Amos chapter 9, verse 7, and Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 5. So as you think about the people groups that occupied the islands of Crete, they made landfall, if you will. We believe that they began to occupy the mouth of Egypt, and the Egyptians turned them back, and then they went to this lower strip of land. And James, if you can put up... The, uh, the graphic, as you look at the graphic, you see to the left the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean. On the right, you see the Syrian desert. All the way to the south, you can see the Arabah Valley. Now, as you look and you see where Egypt joins with Philistia, you see a series of cities. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza. And if you're familiar at all with modern happenings, That is known in modern times as the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has been forever 
a painful source of irritation to the people of Israel. And we'll get into that a little bit more. So the Philistines migrated to the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and they attempted to penetrate the mouth of the, 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 the Nile River. They set up a series of cities on the coastline. These are known as the five great cities of Philistia. And if you've ever heard the expression Palestine, it comes from that word, from the land of Philistia. As a matter of fact, it was never a word that was used by observant Jews or the Bible to describe the land. Rather, it was a word that would become adopted by the Roman Empire and then applied to the land. So they set up a series of cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, um, which, of course, is the very famous city of Goliath. You'll remember from Sunday school, from the story of David and Goliath. Now, the Philistines caused constant trouble for Israel and Judah until David, the king, subdued them in about 1000 B.C., which is you can read about it in Second Samuel, chapter eight. Um, during the reigns of David and Solomon, the Philistines were subject to Israel as a vassal state. But the northern and the southern kingdoms, when Solomon became king and then after Solomon became king, the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom. And during that time, the Philistines once again asserted power and independence. And then they became under subjugation to the kingdoms of Assyria, Babylonia, Greece, they rose, they fell, they came under the power and the control of those kingdoms. And in the second century B.C., during the time of the Maccabean revolt, the Philistines were largely assimilated into the population of Israel. That's going to be about 100 B.C. And so they sort of disappear from history once they're assimilated. There's several major prophecies given against that area in Isaiah chapter 14. Verses 28 through 31, Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 15 through 17, Amos chapter one, verse six, Zephaniah chapter two, verses four through seven. And so you can see that the Lord is going to speak to this particular area. And look what it says in the opening verse. The prophecy came before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. The unfortunate situation is we don't know which Pharaoh and which time. Because Gaza was attacked by many pharaohs many times. So some Bible commentators suggest that it's the attack of Pharaoh Necho that he made on the Gaza as he retreated from the Babylonian army. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Carchemish, which the Egyptians, after defeating the Israelis, go north and then east to the Euphrates, where they are defeated by the Babylonians. They hightail it back to Egypt. On the way back to Egypt, Pharaoh Necho attacked Gaza. And so others suggest that it, it might be Pharaoh Necho, others um, think that it might be Pharaoh Necho leaving the defeated Josiah and he attacks Gaza after the plains of Megiddo. Some think it's Pharaoh Hophra who captured Gaza in one of his northern campaigns. Andrew Blackwood, a, a fine Bible teacher, writes, and I quote, the Talmudic Seder Olam says that the Pharaoh attacked Gaza after failing to relieve Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar. In Herodotus's histories, it says that the Egyptians took Cadus. Some scholars, again, believe that this is Gaza. But I'm going to help you think a little bit differently about the city. The name Gaza comes from the Hebrew word Azaz. And that may not mean a whole lot to you. But the word means strong or a fortress or a stronghold. We might think of it as a castle with a moat and a wall. It was a fortified city. Now, you know that in the Bible, sometimes places become a type or a picture. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told concerning the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel that all these things happened unto them for types. In Romans, Paul writes and he says, These things were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So Paul explains that the record of these events were given for a special purpose, to teach us lessons. And Paul links the place of bondage And the place of promise like a journey. Let me give you some examples. In the Bible, we think of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. But Bethlehem is also the place where the bread of life comes forth. Jesus is born. He is the bread that's come down from heaven. And we're going to talk more about that when we have communion. Um, When we think about Salem. It means the city of peace. When we think about Hebron, Hebron means fellowship. And Hebron was the place where Abraham meets with God and Isaac meets with God and Jacob meets with God. There's a brook called Kidron at the bottom of Jerusalem. And this is the brook that Jesus has to pass over In the final week of his life, before he's going to be crucified, and the word kidron means blackness or darkness. And it becomes a type and a picture of passing over darkness or blackness into light and life. And so I'm going to suggest to you that Gaza, strong, fortress, That Gaza is such a place, it's a stronghold. It was the place where the enemies of Israel would launch attack against the children of God. Do you realize that it's that way to this very day? If you listen to the news in the next few days and weeks, or at least in the next month, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to hear a news broadcast says, Rockets were launched from Gaza as the, as the people of Gaza continue to launch rockets on the surroundings of Jerusalem. Why? What is it about this place that in every single generation it becomes a physical, literal place of irritation and annoyance? And I'm going to suggest to you that it becomes a type, a picture of strongholds, not only in the life of the covenant people, But in our life, strongholds in our lives frustrate us and hinder us. They hinder us in our growth, in our maturation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably even as I'm talking about that, some of you have been Christians for a very, very long time. You've been a Christian for 20 years. You've been a Christian for 10 years. You've been a Christian for five years. You've been a Christian for three years. You've been a Christian for a year. And you thought that when you became a Christian, that it would be sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, and everything is what I'm feeling when we're together brighter than a lucky penny when we're near the rainbow disappears. And that's what feels so fun. Just to know that you are mine. I don't know why I'm thinking of that song. It's just a happy song. But you think when you become a Christian, it's all roses and happiness and rainbows and nothing is ever going to go wrong again. And then all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but when you became a Christian and you realized for the first time that there was still bad words inside of your heart and there was bad speech on your lips. And maybe you even did things, wicked things that you thought were a part of your past. And that they would never be a part of your present. The source of strongholds in this particular passage is going to face the judgment of God. And see, there, there, there is this type in this picture, even in the life of the Christian, where God wants to address those areas of our life that have taken over our thinking or our feeling or our circumstances. By the way, most of us are familiar with the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. It's that very, very popular passage, and it's the only, only, only mention of stronghold in the entire New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for for the destruction of fortresses. The word fortresses there could also be translated strongholds. And so Paul says, look, 
in the realm of humanity, when you have two armies, you have to equip the armies with tanks and guns. There's there's all kinds of ways that people wage war. But we as Christians, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. In other words, even though we are human beings with human minds and human eyes and human lips and a human heart, that the way that we deal with spiritual problems is different. The Bible in the New Testament says that our warfare is not carnal or fleshly. Like I said, we put on the full armor of God. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 through 17. And many of you are going to be familiar with that. But before I proceed, let me just pause for a moment and ask the question. What are strongholds? They are the mental reasonings in our lives that resist God and the word of God. Now, this becomes important because that's exactly what Gaza would do. They would resist the people of God. They would resist the word of God. They would resist the promises of God. And remember, when you became a Christian, just like when the children of Israel were occupying this particular territory, there were already people there who didn't want to leave. And when you became a Christian, there were thoughts in your mind And affections in your heart that you had grown up with that didn't want to leave. That bother you and torment you and launch attacks against you. And that becomes part of the point. You see, the strongholds are mental reasonings in our lives that resist God and the word of God. And why is this important to you? Because if they are mental reasonings in our lives that resist God and the word of God, then it's not like something physical. It's not like something tangible that you can flush down the toilet or that you can lock away in a closet. It's something invisible and internal. And so Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 3, 10 verses 3 and 4 says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of these forces. Things like prayer and things like Bible study and things like friendship and fellowship and the cultivation of the character of Christ and faith and hope and love in your life, because faith, hope and love and the character of Christ aren't visible things. Just like prayer. And you sometimes wonder, I don't understand how prayer is going to help me with my thought life. I don't know how prayer is going to help me with my addictions. I don't know how prayer is going to help me with this or with that. But the truth is, remember that your warfare has an invisible internal component to it. And there might be a voice that whispers in your ear, what good does it mean to go to church? Why should you go to church? Why should you open your Bible? Why? Look at this, Jeremiah chapter 47. What does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Strongholds are invisible and internal. Now remember, Paul's not opposed to reasoning. Just the kind of reasoning... That opposes God and the word of God. So we're given a peek into how to deal with the strongholds. We don't battle according to earthly strategies. Our weapons are spiritual. The belt of truth. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6. The breastplate of righteousness. Our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. And so the power to deal with these strongholds. Comes from God. And it's God's plan to demolish those spiritual strongholds. But see, this was part of the problem in the history of Israel. Gaza was a great holdout almost through the entire history of their existence, including now. There are people who will point to Gaza and say that is Gaza. It does not belong to Israel. It belongs to the Palestinians. Is that true or false? By the way, it is true or false. Now, do the Palestinians think it belongs to them? Yes. 
Does the Bible give them permission to occupy all of the land that is spoken of in the book of Joshua? I think so. Why is this important to you? Because there are whispers that go on inside of your head and your heart where someone will whisper inside of your head, well, that doesn't belong to God. That belongs to you. Or that belongs to your mother, your father. Your father, your brother, your sister, your friend, your boss, this world. In other words, all of the affections and, and, and attention that they think. And they say, this, this doesn't really belong to God. So what are, what are they? What are some of these strongholds? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that these are... The affections and attentions and reasons that we don't do what God asks us to do. So how are the spiritual strongholds demolished? Paul says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. We make it obedient to Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.5. The arguments are the philosophies, the worldviews, the reasonings, the scheming of carnal, conceited, corrupt human beings. The pretensions have to do with anything or anyone who is proud or carnal or man-centered rather than Christ-centered. And so there's these attentions and affections. Warren Wiersbe writes, Paul used spiritual weapons to tear down the opposition. Prayer, the word of God, love, the power of the spirit at work in his life. He didn't depend on personalities, human abilities, or even the authority that he himself had as an apostle. He also writes, many believers today do not realize that the church is involved in warfare and those who do understand the seriousness of the Christian battle do not always know how to fight the battle. They try to use human methods to defeat demonic sources and these methods are doomed to fail. When Joshua and his army marched around Jericho for a week, the spectators thought that they were mad and when the Jews trusted God and obeyed orders, they brought down the walls and they conquered their enemies, unquote. But remember, this seemed Foolish. Well, okay, tell me again how you're going to take Jericho. We're going to march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, we're going to shout and the walls are going to come down. That's crazy talk. Where did you go to school? Where did you study warfare? This isn't the way you defeat your enemy. And God says... Let me help you understand how you can defeat your enemy. Believe everything that I say and do and I will defeat him for you. But you see, even now, even as I'm speaking, you're wondering if it could really be true. When we trust the Lord and obey the Lord, we can break the strongholds in our lives. And you might think that prayer is useless and the word of God fruitless and love and the power of the spirit as a fiction. But I'm here to tell you that this is the only way that you will have full and final deliverance. And that you'll get to occupy the property that you were always meant to occupy. We as Christians are engaged in a spiritual battle. And the enemy has constructed fortified cities, garrisons, outposts that resist the truth and attempt to thwart the plan of God. And see, this was what Gaza was in ancient history. It was the place that attempted to resist the truth and thwart the plan of God. And so, again, what are some of those fortresses? Human reason, not in the good sense, but in the bad sense. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to think, but there is a wrong thinking process. Passions, lusts, perversions, fantasies, and of course, the biggest castle of all, the most difficult, pernicious stronghold that never seems to let go. Pride. The thought that we can accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. 
The enemy is firmly entrenched. The walls of resistance are firmly in place. Even Voltaire, the famous atheist, said, when he who hears doesn't know what he who speaks means, and when he who speaks doesn't know what he himself means, that's philosophy. And he's a philosopher. What he's basically saying is, you have a couple of choices about who you're going to trust and what you're going to trust. Are you going to trust the wisdom of men or are you going to trust the wisdom of God? Someone wants to find philosophy as a study that lets us be unhappy more intelligently. I'm not opposed to reasoning. And I'm certainly not opposed to truth. Ambrose Bierce, the famous satirist, said, everyone are lunatics. But he who can analyze his delusions is called a philosopher. People will constantly go back into their own mind and in their own heart to try to figure out why God's word doesn't work and it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, what is a stronghold? It's anything that keeps you from depending on God and the gospel. And strongholds are any and every false philosophy and false theory that proudly asserts independence from God. Here's where you know that you might have a problem with a stronghold. It's that thing that you trust instead of God. I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer it right away. I want you to think about it just for a moment. I want you to allow it to sort of soak into your thinking for just a moment. What is the single most dangerous stronghold in your life. I want you to be careful before you answer. What comes to your mind? What are you thinking about now? Images? Substance abuse? Sexual addictions? Chemical addictions? Bad habits? What is it that you're thinking about right now? I'm going to make a suggestion of a possible answer. It might be the one thing that you think is no problem at all. That's the most dangerous stronghold. It's the stronghold that you don't even envision as a stronghold, that you don't think that has control, that doesn't have manipulative power in your life. The truth We're going to occupy the place that God has called us to. But if for whatever reason the occupation doesn't go away, God has promised to judge the stronghold. Let's continue to read. Now we're at verse 2. Can you believe it? Thus says the Lord. Behold, waters rise out of the the north, and it shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. Now here's the picture of judgment. It comes like a flood of waters. And remember, that's the same word that was used to describe Egypt, and then also to describe Babylon. The judgment is coming from the north, the people are overcome with fear and terror. They're frantically running around. They're doing everything that they can to possibly avoid the judgment. But the people are helpless to escape. And that's what we've already learned. That when once God has promised judgment, there are those people who are going to say, I know that God has promised judgment, but I'm going to be the one person that escapes judgment. Do you think that's right thinking or foolish thinking? Do you think when the Bible says that the soul that sins it shall surely die, that you will be the one exception? When the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, but you think that the way of the transgressor is easy. 
you hear the Bible teach that what a person sows, that also that they will reap. And if you sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. But you're the one person, you're the one person, you're the one person who can sow rebellion and disobedience. And you're going to be the one person who gets away with it. Is that right thinking or wrong thinking? It's wrong thinking. And so the Lord says, Gaza, Philistia, you are going to be judged. And once again, there's nothing that you're going to do. You're going to be helpless to escape the judgment. Look at verse 3. At the noise of the stamping hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, this pictures a type of overwhelming power, military power. They're going to be overrun and overwhelmed. The fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage. Do you understand the picture that you're reading? The picture are people in a panic. Fathers are fleeing for their lives so frightened that they can't even protect their children. One of the stories that emerged from the Aurora shooting was of a person who, as the shooter is going and they're shooting these people in this methodical way and people are dying and people are being wounded and people are running for their lives. They're doing whatever it takes to get out of that theater. And one man fled. He left his wife and he left his children and he ran as quickly and as far as he possibly could. And then all of a sudden, when he was at a safe distance, he realized, where's my wife and where's my children? What kind of a panic and what kind of a fear and what kind of a terror causes you to lose all sense and sensibility so that you don't care about anything other than yourself? That's what this passage is describing. Lacking courage, it's just a poetic way of saying a complete coward. How strange, how desperate, when the judgment is so overwhelming that you can't even pause and wonder. What's happened to my wife? What's happened to my husband? What's happened to my children? Can you imagine a stronghold in your life that causes you to completely ignore your job, your wife, your family, your children, your church, your nation? That's the severity of the judgment. It's the inevitability and the severity And the rest of the passage is devoted to the certainty of judgment. Look what it says in verse 4. Because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines. Because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines. To cut them off from Tyre and Sidon. If you can put the, the visual back up. Again, on the map, you can see the Great Sea, you see Gaza. As you go north up the Mediterranean coast, there is Tyre and there is Sidon. And every helper who remains for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. The country of Kaftor, do you see the island at the very top in the left? Do you see that little island sticking out in the map? Who knows what that place is? That's Crete. That's their homeland. That's their origin. The Philistines migrated from that island to that peninsula and the Philistines built wealthy trading partners with Tyre and Sidon so much so that Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines established ports in Syracuse. That's in Sicily where my family's from. They established a port in Spain near the pillars of Hercules. They established a city on the North African continent called Carthage. This is the place where Hannibal would be from and all of North Africa. And so they built this wealthy empire and trading partnership, selling, sailing, trading. And Tyre and Sidon joined partnership with Judah in in an attempt to try and stop Babylon. But part of the point that is being made is that no matter how wealthy you are and how successful you've been and no matter how strong the friendships and the relationships that you've formed. When God has decided to get rid of something and judge something, it's going to happen because look what it says in verse four again, because of the day that comes to spoil all 
the Philistines. Now, I want you to think it through. Why are the people overcome with fear? Because the day of judgment has come. The day that came when God decided to judge the Philistines and her allies, Tyre and Sidon, what does that have to do with you and me? Does the Bible repeatedly talk about a day of judgment that will come? Does the Bible repeatedly talk about that every human being, big or small, black or white, young and old, male and female, Greek and slave, does the Bible speak of a time when each and every person everywhere is going to stand before God and give an account of their life? And just like the judgment is certain for Philistia, the judgment is going to be certain for the nations. We've noted that God's judgment must come on those who continued in rebellion and disobedience. No nation will be overlooked. No nation will be given a free pass. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the self-righteous people in a series of woes. You're all familiar with Matthew 23, 31, where it says, therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? You know who's saying that? Jesus is saying those words. Because you're probably thinking, isn't that a little bit harsh? I would think so if it were coming from any other lips other than the lips of the Savior. Why does the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this child, the loving Jesus, the gracious Jesus, the generous Jesus, the patient Jesus? Why does he use this kind of language? Why is it so dramatic? Why is it so stark? Why is it so abrupt? Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about the very same thing in verses 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. They don't want to retain God in their knowledge. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to move that we include God in our platform. All in favor, say aye. All opposed? Roar! No! 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 By the way, can you vote on retaining God in your platform? Sure you can. Can you wake up one morning and, and all of a sudden the chairman of your heart wakes you up and says, uh, this is the chairman of your heart speaking, uh, you are going to retain God in your thinking today. Or you're not going to retain thinking about God. All in favor, say aye. Really? I know, you're probably thinking Gino needs to get back on his medication. The reason why Paul says this, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, Paul pounds it, he hounds it, and he pounds it, and he says, you've forgotten, you think that you've forgotten, but you really haven't forgotten, because there's something bugging you and bothering you on a continual basis. It's called your conscience, and it's constantly reminding you that there's a God, and I'm going to have to answer to him. Even though I can live my life and pretend like it's not true. And he writes, and those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Paul writes that they're worthy of death, but guess what? Many of them don't die. They wake up the next morning and they're given an opportunity to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. And if you want more information, you can also look at Romans chapter 2, verse 2, but I don't have time. It says, for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines. The judgment is certain, it's sure, it's guaranteed. It says, the Lord shall plunder the Philistines. The Lord himself will destroy them. These people who migrated from other shores to occupy the land, they wouldn't experience peace. They wouldn't experience prosperity. They would be overcome with grief and sorrow and mourning. Verse 5, baldness has come upon Gaza. Is that because? they're bald or because they have some sort of genetic disability or male pattern baldness no that's not what it means by the way what does that expression mean baldness has come upon Gaza in the ancient world at a funeral people would cut their hair and they would put on sackcloth and ashes they would shave their head this is the behavior of a people who are at a funeral Baldness has come upon Gaza. What's happening? They realize that the judgment has come. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. That means they don't have any help coming. How long will you cut yourself? This is what the religious practices of the Philistines were. They would worship the fish god Dagon. Some of you have seen images of this fish god. It's a man who's half man and then the rest of him is a fish. And you might be thinking, what person in their right mind would worship a being that's half man and half fish? Well, maybe people who go to Red Lobster. No, I go to Red Red Lobster has nothing to do with it. Dagon was a deity because remember, these are people from the sea. They rely on the sea. Their income comes from the sea. Their livelihood comes from the sea. And so Dagon became the object of worship. And for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll remember in the book of Judges how Samson, who had some strongholds in his life, he is blinded and he is taken to the Philistine city where he is forced to grind grain and in his last heroic act, he grows out his hair and he pushes the pillars and all of the Philistines perish in their place of worship. But guess what? They continued worshiping this God. They would make supplications to their deity. Just because people have rejected the God of the Bible, that doesn't mean that they don't worship something or care about something. And so two cities are singled out as special objects of divine punishment. Gaza and Ashkelon both are utterly devastated, ruined to the point where there is silence and there is mourning. And in verse six, it says, oh, you sword of the Lord, how long will you be quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard, rest and be still. Reread that. Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. Here's here's the cry. How long is this judgment going to go on? How long is it going to continue? Here's part of the point. The Lord won't return the sword into the scabbard until the judgment is complete. What is God's purpose? He's going to judge the stronghold. It's going to have a beginning. It's going to have a middle. It's going to have an end. God himself has ordered the judgment. Again, Andrew Blackwood writes, man demonstrates an age old willingness to assume responsibility for his woes. In recent years, man has besought the contemporary deities, science, education, national defense, the gross national product to wave a magic wand and make the sword of the Lord disappear. But But Jeremiah's question is as timeless as the evasion. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? In other words, are we going to be able to borrow our way out of debt? Are we going to be able to print money and get out of debt? Are we going to have a booming economy? How will we create a mechanism as a society so that people can figure out one more way To eliminate God from their thinking. 
if there was a massive global collapse and there was a collapse of our economy, do you think that there would be certain people who would go, okay, God, you have my attention. I'm ready to listen to what you have to say. I think that there would be people like that. But would there also be people, I don't care if the economy collapses and I don't care if the American economy collapses, I'm going to still reject God. Are there going to be people like that? How can it be quiet? Look at verse 7. Seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore, there he has appointed it. Here's what he's saying. You want to make the subject of judgment go away. And I understand why. Because it's a hard subject. Ashkelon was one of the five fortified cities of the Philistines. By the way, Ashkelon was an important city after the Babylonians destroyed the city and then wiped out the Philistines. And then it was an important seaport during the Greek or the Hellenistic period. And then Ashkelon became a free city in 104 B.C. This is at the time when the Romans occupy Ashkelon and then begin to invade Egypt. A little bit after Ashkelon is invaded, a man becomes the temporary ruler Of that area. And he sets up a limited kingdom there. And he has a son. His son is born there in Ashkelon. And the son's name is Herod. The great. Who's born in Ashkelon. The city of his birth. The city of the stronghold. By the way. Herod rebuilt the city. It flourished in the Roman and the Byzantine periods. The Crusaders later refortified the city. Then the Muslims captured the city and Saladin made it his fortress against the Christian invaders. Its latest incarnation. It is the Palestinian fortress to launch attacks into the modern state of Israel. The prophet responds to the rhetorical question. How can it be quiet seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon? The answer. God's judgment cannot rest until his purpose is fulfilled. When will the judgment cease? When God's plan has been accomplished. Again, why is all of this stuff important? Because the ultimate judgment has been accomplished in the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, where your sin and your rebellion and my sin and my rebellion has been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. You would think we would learn the lesson. Once God has appointed punishment and judgment, it is certain that judgment will take place. There will come a time when evildoers will experience punishment. There will come a time when justice is fully and finally executed on the earth. But there are people who don't literally believe that. Let me tell you something just quickly before we have communion. Do you know what postpones judgment? Puts it off for another day? Is there anything that you can think of? Mercy can postpone judgment. Grace can postpone judgment. I suspect that there is a time when preaching the gospel postpones judgment. Where God says, you know, your family deserves judgment. And you go, but wait, 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 wait. Lord, Lord, can I have just one more day, one more week? Can I just have one more chance To share about your love. Can I share the gospel? Just Lord. Just one. Just give me one more chance. And then all of a sudden the Lord says. Well you know the judgment can come day after tomorrow. So today. Today would be a great day. To hear about salvation. What is a stronghold? Anything that masters you or attempts to master you. 
And just remember, if you forget everything else I've said in this lesson, you are as strong as your weakest moment. So how strong are you? This is what's interesting. The Bible says, when you are weak, God is willing to be strong in your life. Victory in Jesus may be the praise on your lips, but he has to be the character that's formed in your heart. Again, Wearsby tells this interesting story of pastoring in Chicago. He says, I met weekly with three pastor friends and together we united in warfare praying. We claimed God's promise to cast down the wrong thinking that was keeping people from surrendering to God. And God did great things in the lives of many people for whom we interceded. And once the walls in the mind have been torn down, the door of the heart can be opened. Isn't that good? Once the walls in the mind can be torn down, The doors of the heart can be opened. So what's going to tear down the walls of their mind? Wrong thinking. And open the doors of their heart. It's an honest, persistent presentation of the offer that's made in the person of Jesus So, that's chapter 47. (laughs) Now, remember, that was seven verses. The next one is 47 verses. But I'm going to do the whole thing next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. (laughs) Lord, we... We are amazed, Lord, at your grace and your mercy. Lord, some of us may be willing to admit that we have strongholds. Some of us may foolishly think that we have none. But Lord, we pray that you would identify them. Lord, that we would be very, very careful to remember that anything that keeps us from honoring and obeying you might serve as a stronghold and that Lord when we're waging a war that we can overcome it by the spiritual resources that have been given to us but in the end like Gaza the fortified place when it resists and rejects God that it will be judged and so Heavenly Father we pray that you would prepare us now for communion Lord, we thank you that we can gather together and we can be reminded that a real judgment also took place on the cross of Calvary. That our sins, past, present, future, have been judged. That we can experience forgiveness and hope and power to live lives as men and women who love you and want to honor you. And so, Lord, we pray that even now, as we sing and praise, that we'll prepare, you'll prepare our hearts to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and his love, the bread that's come down from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.